Tonight's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good evening. Uh, My name is Andrew Meredith, and I am an elder in training here at Grace downtown. We are glad that you could join us for worship this evening. Uh, Some of you may know me as that guy whose voice sounds like an audible recording, or so I've been told, and you may be wondering if this whole sermon is going to sound like that. I don't know. Uh, We will figure it out together as we go. Um, This morning at Grace, uh, a friend of mine named Jacob Varvel stopped me in the hallway, and he offered a piece of advice. Uh, for my first sermon. He said, whatever you do, don't lock your legs. So if I suddenly pitch forward um, and fall flat on my face, you know that I have been warned. As Jason read, this evening's passage is 1 Peter 1, 17 through 25. And I uh, recommend that you turn that there in your Bibles uh, if you haven't done so already. And as you do, I have a brief announcement to make that I just dropped. Here we go. Some of you may have received one of these flyers on the way in today. Uh, They are an invitation to a brunch at my house uh, on the morning of October 8th. The purpose of the brunch is first to eat good food uh, and properly welcome you to the church, and second to provide a casual environment for us to get the chance to tell you a bit more about ourselves. Um, as Grace Downtown, as well as answer any questions that you might have. Um, If you didn't receive one, but you feel sufficiently new here, uh, no worries, there will be a stack of them at the front of the meal tonight. Um, So, if you're looking to get plugged in here, or if you would just like more info about us, or if you're one of those people that will do just about anything for free food, uh, you've chosen a good night to come, by the way. then this, this event is for you. All right. To the sermon. Our first Peter study has been centered on hope. And Peter focuses so heavily on the idea of hope for good reason. The first century was not an easy time to be a Christian. In the decades following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, The good news of salvation in his name had spread 
from synagogue to synagogue throughout the entire Roman world. And as Acts tells us, as it spread, it overflowed the, it, it overflowed the Jewish bounds and began to uh, be in the Gentile world as well. And for those of you who are un unfamiliar with the term, Gentile just means non-Jew. So if you are here and you don't have Jewish ancestry, then you, like me, are a Gentile. Uh, initially, the message was met with curiosity and some suspicion, um, but as the number of converts grew, Christianity began to be looked upon with hostility and persecuted. Fairly early on, for a Jewish convert to confess, confess Jesus as the Christ could get you thrown out of your synagogue, which was a big deal because synagogues were the center of communal life at that time, much like a mosque would be for uh, Islam today. To be thrown out of the synagogue would be to be thrown out of the, com the community itself. And it, of it often also meant being ostracized from families. And the Gentiles didn't fare much better. Jesus is Lord directly contrasts with Caesar is Lord. And a good Roman citizen would say Caesar is Lord, but a good Christian would often not. Uh, also, a good Roman citizen was, minced, was expected to give a pinch of incense at the altar of Caesar. But once again, a, that was something the Christians would refuse to do. So they began to be looked upon by the authorities as politically disloyal, and systematic state persecution was ramping up. So between the Jews and the Gentiles, you have more and more authorities bringing more and more persecution onto the Christian, uh, the Christian sect that was growing. And this was an attempt by society to deconvert the new Christians, to conform them back. Uh, on top of all this, standing out and being totally pure is hard. The flesh doesn't like it. So, four tempting responses to this persecution. One, to apostatize. To say you're done. I'm, I'm done. I don't, want, I don't want to suffer anymore. If Christianity causes suffering, I don't want anything to do with it. We do know that this is not Peter's audience. First uh, Peter 1, 1 through 2, Peter says, I'm writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. To be elect is to be chosen by God. Peter is writing to those he has no fear would apostatize. But there are three other options. To privatize. To just personally believe it. To just personally believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried, rose on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But it doesn't actually ha have any impact on your life. You don't even have to associate with Christians if you privatize it. To compromise. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, um, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A salt that loses its saltiness is not good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. His point here is that, we, that Christians are to be distinct. But one who compromises could say, well, maybe we can get away with just being a little less salty. Maybe just a little less bright. And finally, to compartmentalize. To be a Christian among Christians and to be pagan among pagans. 
to, Jesus, to say Jesus is Lord and partake of the Lord's Supper and to worship with fellow Christians on Sunday, but to say Caesar is Lord and offer your incense Monday through Saturday. But Peter here, whoop, it dropped a slide. But Peter here is calling them to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart, to be morally pure in all their conduct. We know this from verse 15. In verse 15, as Jason explained last week, the phrase, all your conduct, points to all areas or all aspects of life. But why? Why be distinct? Why stand out? Why face or the disapproval and general dislike from neighbors, coworkers, friends, family? Why place that target on your back? Further, why go against the desires of the flesh, as holiness so often calls us to do? If salvation consists in believing the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if, as Jason said last week, we have Christ's holiness already surpassing anything that we could offer, then isn't that more than enough? Why be holy? In other words, to speak theologically, if we are justified, having the righteousness of Christ, if we are adopted into God's family, then why be sanctified? This is precisely the question that Peter is addressing in this passage. In this fairly dense passage in front of us today, Peter provides no less, maybe more, but no less than 12 reasons why the early Christian church and we are to be distinct, morally pure, set apart unto God, why we are to be holy. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, as we come to your word this evening, I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would use your word to conform us into the image of your Son. Uh, as for me, Lord, may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Uh, may I teach from your strength. My rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, why be holy? And we're just, we're actually going to start in verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy as I am, or for, for I am holy. Because he, so why be holy? Number one, because it's a command. Because he who called you commands you to be holy. But we know that a command in and of itself cannot change the heart. I was a safety trainer for, the, for being a bus driver. I was a safety trainer for about five years. And so safety trainers have to do a lot of paperwork. Uh, so, and I actually, it was a lot of busy work and I actually did not mind doing the paperwork because it, it allowed me to spend time in my head and just think my own thoughts. But just say that I was, my boss never did this, but just say I was sitting in the, in the uh, training room and I was just doing the paperwork mindlessly and the boss came in 
and, and say I was enjoying it too. So I was doing the paperwork, I was enjoying it, my boss comes in and he says, Andrew, you better be doing that paperwork. It doesn't matter how much I was enjoying doing the paperwork before, I now hate it. And I don't want to spend any more time doing this paperwork. That is because our hearts react against commands. We don't like people telling us what to do. And that extends to when God gives us his commands. So when God commands, be holy, there is, no, there is no power in my heart that wants to obey that command. There is no desire there. In fact, the exact opposite. In Romans 7, and I'll see if I've... Yeah, Romans 7, 10 through 12. It didn't fit on the slide, so you can turn it if you want to. But I'm just going to read it. So I discovered that the very commandment that was meant to bring life actually brought death. For sin... Seizing its opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. As I said before, the command in and of itself cannot change the heart, quite the opposite. And this is why point two is so vital. And if you call on him as father, starting in verse 117, because, so why be holy? Because you call on God as your heavenly father. This is familial language. And Jason has already unpacked much of this last week. So I'm not going to touch on much of it here. I just refer you to his excellent sermon. Uh, but a brief recap for the purpose of the sermon. If you are in Christ, then you have been born again into the holy family of God. Christ has given you his holiness. Now the perfect law which before only served to restrain and condemn you, has a new function. It reveals how you can love God by obeying his law. 1 John 5.3 makes this exact point. And this is love. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You must be born again into the family of God. This is the the po this point is the bedrock foundation for the rest of this list. Obedience and moral purity flow out of a new heart. Without this, any obedience that you can muster will only amount to legalism and will not be pleasing in God's sight. 1 Peter 1.14 or 1.17. Why be holy? And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, because he is an impartial judge of all our deeds. The idea here is an individual's body of work being judged according to the standard, and then God justly, impartially rendering to each what is owed. And the standard in question is not your neighbor, it's not the person to your left or your right, it's not your family, it's not your friends, it's not your enemies. The standard is holiness, which is a sobering thought. Before I go too far down the fear track, because that will be the next, that will be the next point, I want to just say what good news it is to have a God who judges impartially, a God who will render to each according to their works. Have any, any of you ever been wronged before? Has the person gotten away with it? Have any of you ever witnessed injustice in this world? There is much injustice in this fallen world. 
But the Bible promises that there is not a deed that will not be brought to light. And death is not an escape from justice. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men to die once, and afterwards comes judgment. So yes, we should pray for our enemies, that they would turn in faith to Christ. But the heart is glad when justice is done. All that being said, we need to conduct ourselves in this life knowing that all our deeds are going to be brought into the light on the day of judgment. Which leads us to fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why be holy? Because you are to fear God rather than man. Fear is a controlling force. We are often moved by it, more often than we admit to ourselves. Most real decisions, I would go so far to say, have fear somewhere near the bottom of the why chain. Why do you go to work? Why do you wear the clothes you wear? The fear of this verse for a Christian is not fear of punishment. I want to make that clear. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, it's a fear of reverence and awe. So, having the Lord as your fear is healthy and good. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, Fear the Lord and serve him only. Proverbs 1.7 says, uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this is no small matter, by the way. The claim here is that no point of fact can be truly known apart from its relationship to God. Go, going along with that, Proverbs 9.10 9, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One of the promises God gives about the new covenant is, I will put the fear of me on their hearts that they may not turn from me. That's Jeremiah 32, 40. A godly fear lifts our eyes above uh, our anxieties, the terrors of this world, of our sojourning, and it places them on the one who sovereignly rules all things. Speaking of sojourning, why be holy? Number five, because this world is not your home. The exile of this verse means sojourning or living in a foreign land. And the idea here is that we are heaven's citizens. This shows up in 1 Peter 2.9, the very next chapter. Peter tells his readers that they are a holy nation, a lasting, permanent kingdom. What you do in this life for the kingdom will last, but the things of this world won't. Which flows into the next point. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Why be holy? Point six. Because the ways of this world are futile. The ways of your forefathers, here in this verse, are all the ways apart from God that man has sought to find meaning and purpose. The word futile here, is means purposeless, aimless, useless, vain. When they were translating the Old Testament into Greek, this word, the same word that is used for futile, is used for that famous verse in Ecclesiastes 2, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. 
So if you turn back, what are you turning back to? Everything you, you pursue apart from holiness, will either, you will either fail to obtain it, or, worse yet, sometimes you'll succeed. Either way, you will be empty, and you'll lose it all in the end. How many people have killed or been killed for gold and silver? How many have given their lives in the pursuit of these metals? And yet they are perishable. They're worth exactly nothing to the one who is dead. Without God, without God, life is a long, slow march towards a pointless death. It's a prison that enslaves you in meaninglessness and hopelessness. But conduct yourselves in fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Why be holy? Number seven, because you were ransomed with the blood of Christ. To ransom here means to purchase for a price. And the idea of ransom, at least in the biblical sense, in biblical times, was connected with slavery. So if somebody ransomed somebody else, they would be paying price, a price in order to buy that person's freedom. God the Son, foreknown before the foundation of the world, gave his life for you. This was his stated purpose in coming. Mark 10, 45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You were ransomed, and specifically you were ransomed from futility, from meaninglessness. If you follow Peter's logic, and I have it spelled out, I think, on this verse, if you follow Peter's logic, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. The price that God willingly paid for you to bring you back to himself, that is what leads you to fear him. And that's what leads you to conduct yourselves with fear. And the same idea is echoed in Psalm 130, three through four. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So how? How does God's salvation, his mercy of all things, bring about a fear of him in the one saved? Because you, enslaved to your own futility, did nothing to deserve his grace. If you just scan, go back to the beginning of 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused his elect to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why be holy? Because Christ has been raised and glorified. A bodily, physical resurrection, he has forever overcome death. And you, buried with him by faith in baptism and raised out of the waters in newness of life, 
no longer need to fear death, for it is a conquered enemy. Christ has been glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father, and is reigning now over his church, over all governments, over all human institutions. He is Lord now, glorified to the right hand of the Father. There is no such thing as secular space or neutral space to retreat into. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is not a square inch of this world over which Jesus does not cry, mine. There is no neutral space on which to put aside God's commands on your life. And pretending that there is, is treason. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why be holy? Point nine, because your souls were purified or are purified by your obedience to the truth. But how can this be? Wasn't I saved through faith? Absolutely. It is faith alone in Christ alone that restores fellowship to the Father. We need to be careful not to read concepts into verses that aren't there. Salvation isn't in this verse. It neither says, having saved your souls by your obedience to the truth, nor does it say, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for salvation. But it says, having purified your souls for a sincere love. The purity of the soul, the purity of the soul corresponds to the sincerity of the love. The purer the soul, the more sincere. When we obey the Lord, we stop being double-minded, self-focused, fear-driven, torn between following our own desires and doing his will, and are thus pure. This purity allows us to freely give ourselves to loving one another in a wholehearted way, which leads to ten. Because this purity of heart and soul, oh, because this purity of heart and soul is the only way to truly love others. Love is a sacrificial giving of yourself and what is yours for the good of another. I didn't put it in. First, first John 3, 16 and 18 reads, by this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love merely in word and talk, but in deed and truth. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Number 11 because you were born again. And this is not a mere repeat of number two. Being born again is more than just entry into the family of God. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. The promise of the new covenant is a new heart that has been awakened to the things of God. He removed our heart of stone and he has given us a heart of flesh, a heart to love him, a heart that is eager to do his will. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation with new desires, namely the desire to do the will of your heavenly father. 
One who has been born again will love the things of God and long to obey his commands. Why be holy? Because your salvation is imperishable. You were born, again, not of perishable seed, but with imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So your salvation is is imperishable, and your hope is sure. Born of imperishable seed, bought with the imperishable blood, precious blood of Christ, his Holy Spirit now indwells you. And he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So now we move into application. Application one, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hopes on the imperishable. Spiritual disciplines are very useful to combat the enticing worldly worldly narratives that we are surrounded with. By spiritual disciplines, I mean daily Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, meditation on scripture. These are rhythms you should build into into your daily rhythms and they will remind you of the story of redemption. Number two, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Find the things in your life that tempt you to turn back to former hopes and minimize or lose them. For me, this is unguarded time on YouTube. I can begin a YouTube video and wake up an hour and a half later having watched 20 of them. Or music on the radio. Each one of these forms of media is a vehicle for storytelling. Every song you listen to has a story behind it that can tempt you to worldliness in your thinking. Paul tells us to take every thought captive. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to violently cut off anything hindering us from entering the kingdom of heaven. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it's better for you to enter life with one hand than to have two hands and be thrown into hell. Number three, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. True reverence for the one who loved you and gave himself up for you to bring you into the family of God consists in daily repentance, daily obedience, and doing all to the glory of God. As it says, Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. True, God-honoring fear of the Lord begins with meditating on the body of Christ broken for you and his his precious blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In taking communion, which we will do tonight, it, it is a gospel word picture portraying what Christ has done. And in partaking of it, we are reminded of this incredible reality. And finally, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Sacrificial care 
for your brothers and sisters in Christ, models to unbelieving world the love of Christ, and it cares for your brothers and sisters. Um, two years ago, in the winter of 2020, my wife and I had what is known as a full molar pregnancy. I'm not going to explain all the details of what that means. You can Google it. But know that in a full molar pregnancy, the fetus is non-viable and it actually threatens the life of the mother. <clears throat> I have, well, it was, it was the darkest time of either of our lives. I have three memories from that time. The first is unrelenting pain. As day in and day out, for weeks and months on end, we sat and wept and tried to live our lives, but just surrounded with the feeling of pain. Number two, I remember feeling fear. Fear for the safety of my wife. Fear for her well-being. Uh, she had a surgery to remove the, the pregnancy. And um, it was, they were mostly sure that she would come out of it with, with still having the ability to bear children. And number three, what I remember is the love of the community that surrounded us. Many of you are sitting here in this room. You came to us, you prayed with us, you wept with us, you kept us in your prayers. We had so many meals delivered. We had so many gift cards that we were eating free food for three months later, long after it had passed. I remember the day of the surgery, a group of men came to my house and they just sat and prayed with me and prayed for the success of the surgery. So when I say, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, I am not telling you to do anything you're not already doing. You do this well. And just as you are already doing, do so more and more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, all blessings flow from you. And the greatest blessing of all is knowing you and being known by you and having the indescribable privilege of being able to call upon your name. Remind us daily of your love as we remind one another and teach us to fear your name. In your son's name, amen.